I'm just looking. I see you. I thought I saw Ray in here. Oh, there you are. Hey, brother. Okay. I didn't see you up front, so I was confused because that's your seat right there, but you're sitting all the way in the back. That's okay. It's all right. All right, let's get into the Word, okay? Let's do that this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 31 and a few other passages in chapter 14. We turn to page 851, 850, that'll bring you, 851, that'll bring you to the text. So how many of you are glad to be here this morning? All right, that's good. 50%, that's good. I'll take that any day of the week. Okay, brothers and sisters, let's... This will be a little bit different probably. I have one point for this message, believe it or not. Just one. And it's because I wanted to just really narrow in on this one particular aspect, I think, that I can draw out of this passage. Try to drive it home and try to make it very practical uh, near the end of the sermon for you. I titled the message, Delusional. Delusional. Delusion, in case you don't know, is simply a If you are delusional, it is to hold a false or mistaken belief even in the face of evidence that is contradictory. So I thought I would tell you this joke in order to illustrate what it is to be delusional. It goes like this. Perhaps you've heard of the man who thought he was dead. In reality, he was very much alive. His delusion became such a problem that his family finally paid for him to go see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist spent many laborish sessions trying to convince the man that he was actually still alive. Nothing seemed to work. Finally, the doctor tried one last approach. He took out his medical books and proceeded to show the patient that dead men don't bleed. After hours of tedious study, the patient seemed convinced that dead men don't bleed. So he says, do you now agree that dead men don't bleed? Asked the doctor. Yes, I do, the patient replied. Very well then, the doctor said. He took out a pin and pricked the patient's finger and out came a trickle of blood. The doctor asked, what does that tell you? Oh my goodness, the patient exclaimed as he stared in disbelief at his finger. Dead men do bleed. (laughs) Delusional. To believe something that is false or mistaken, even against evidence that is clearly contradictory. Well, in our text today, the reason I started off with all that, the reason I titled the sermon that is I believe that, or I hope to at least show you, that Peter and the other disciples of Jesus were in a sense delusional. They were delusional. And I think in this way, we are more like them than we may know 
or we may want to admit. So I hope to show you that by the end of the time today. Before I read the text, I want to remind you where we are in Mark. Just try to catch you up and give you a context so you understand the facts, the environment, what was taking place at that time. It is now in Mark late Thursday evening. Late Thursday evening. Probably sometime around midnight. Jesus will be arrested, tried, and crucified all by 9 a.m. by the next day. And he will hang and suffer on the cross until 3 p.m. of that day, Friday, when he finally breathes his last breath. On Thursday night, as we talked about last week, Jesus had celebrated the Passover supper with his disciples. And after spending the evening together, they were leaving now the city to make their way, leaving Jerusalem, to make their way towards the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is located just east of Jerusalem, about a 15-minute walk. Actually, just one half of a mile. So no more than 15 minutes, just to give you the, the events. Because as we talk more about the final events of Jesus' life, I'll try to put this chronology together for you. Earlier in that night, Thursday night, Jesus had told them that one of them, them being disciples, He told them, one of you will Betray me. And we looked at this last week. Judas is the betrayer to whom Jesus is referring, but the eleven do not know that. The remaining eleven. They are unaware that it is Judas who will betray Jesus. Judas is no longer with the group as they're making their way to the Mount of Olives. He had been excused earlier in the night by Jesus Christ to fulfill his dastardly deed. But when Judas does return to the group, he will not be alone. To the shock of everyone, except for Jesus, who knew exactly what was going to take place, Judas returns with a hostile group. They arrest Jesus and they take him away to be tried. But before this act of Vile betrayal happens. Jesus speaks these words to the eleven disciples on their way to the Mount of Olives. Mark 14, verse 27 through 31. Just follow along with me. And Jesus said to them, that's not the right passage, but, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Anytime you see, for it is written, it's typically a reference back to the Old Testament scriptures. He goes on to say in verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Stop right there. Just want to remind you, back in Mark 13.35, we read about the story that Jesus was telling the people about the master of the house that would return at an hour that they did not know so that they always had to be ready. And he talked about the master of the house or the owner of the house returning 
either at evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. And I told you at that time, and I'll tell you again because it's helpful to know for this passage, the Romans divided up the evening from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches or into four periods. So from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., they called it the evening. And it was the termination of that period that they identified. So 9 p.m., that's the evening period from 6 to 9. From 9 to 12, they just referred to that as midnight. From 12 to 3, when the rooster crows. And from 3 to 6, morning. Now, you can do research about when rooster crows. And we have typically an understanding that roosters crow very early in the morning. And generally that is true, but roosters do crow throughout the day. But for whatever reason, they become more active at this period of the morning. And there's they try to come up with reasons, biological reasons. Maybe it's the sun. Maybe it's the roosters trying to establish their dominance over the other roosters. I don't, I don't really know and I don't care. But the bottom line is this, just so that you understand. When someone said when the rooster crows, it's basically saying, listen, it's going to happen by 3 a.m. It's just a way of referring to that time period. So when Jesus says specifically, Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows, and in this case, Mark adds twice, it is a general reference that it's going to happen very soon before 3 a.m., And in this case, you'll hear the rooster crow at least twice before you deny me three times. Okay, so just understand that's the reference. Now remember, it's midnight. Remember, that's why I gave you the chronology. It's midnight. This is only three hours away, basically is what Jesus is saying. You're not going to deny me someday in the future. Peter, you're going to deny me in the next several hours. Before the 3 a.m. watch comes, before we get to the morning watch even, you'll deny me three times. You who say, you'll never leave me. You'll never fall away. Verse 31. But he said emphatically, that is Peter, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. That is the other 11. 10, counting Peter 11. Judas is gone deceiving Jesus, betraying Jesus. So, we're going to come back to this text in a moment. It's the main text, but I want to jump a little ahead in the story, and that's why these other passages are here in your notes. Not too long after Jesus, as I said, said these words, approximately an hour or so later, Judas shows up with a crowd. Okay, So, somewhere around 1 a.m., he shows up with this crowd of Roman soldiers, which we'll get to this in the coming weeks, and the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. So here's Jesus in the eleven near the Mount of Olives. We'll talk about that Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get to all that. Judas shows up with a Roman cohort, a band of soldiers and religious leaders, specifically Jewish religious leaders. They seize Jesus. They take Him away. What do Jesus' disciples do? Look down at the text. Just drop your eyes down. Mark 14:50. And they all left him and fled. Now, in case we're not sure who the they are, in Matthew, it's explicit. In Matthew 26, 56, it says all the disciples left him. Get the picture so far? Here's the 11. Here's Jesus. Judas shows up with the band, the group that are there to trap Jesus, to take him away, ultimately to have him murdered. 
Jesus is taken away and Jesus' faithful followers for three years leave. They scatter. They abandon Him. But in Mark 15.54, we learn that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. So he goes away, but he doesn't go so far away that he can't follow Jesus as he's being taken away. And specifically, he's taken away into the courtyard of the high priest. And we're told in Mark 15.54, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That is Peter. Now this courtyard, beloved, is the place where Jesus' mock trial was held in an attempt to find a charge against Him that would stick and that they could use to call out for His death. That's what's going on here. Middle of the night. This is all taking place while everyone else is asleep. Peter's there. He left, he fled, but he's following at a distance. He's there, he's watching in the courtyard this travesty of justice unfold before his eyes. Drop down to Mark 14.66. And we'll read through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, we just talked about it, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. They refer to Jesus as the Nazarene because that's where he was raised in Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. That's number two, right? And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Again, the area of Galilee, where Jesus was raised, where many of the disciples came from. And he says in verse 71, But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear. You know, I just gotta, I wanna point this out because some translations actually have, and he began to curse and to swear. And people wrongly understand that in our 21st century that he began to use foul language. That's not what's going on here. He didn't begin to curse or use foul language. He began to call a curse upon himself. Basically saying, if what I'm saying isn't true, may the rocks fall on me. May God kill me. That's what's going on here. It's like saying, if I'm not true, may you stick a thousand needles in my eye. Same idea. Uh, I, I think we used, I've used that as a kid. Didn't you use that as a kid? Something like that. We would call out a curse on us. Or, you know, my mother's back, bro. I don't know. Something like that. But that's what's going on. So now he's, the third denial, he's getting crazy. I, I'm calling down a curse. I swear to you. And he says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him. So maybe he missed the first crow. I don't know. But he got this one. He heard it. And he remembered. Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. 
If we take the other accounts of this story in the other Gospels, this didn't happen one after another, these denials. They happened over a period of a couple of hours. So he had time to think about each denial. And yet he continued throughout the evening, just as Jesus said he would, when the shepherd would be struck or taken away, that the sheep would scatter. And and even at Peter's strong denial that that would ever happen, telling Peter, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And that's exactly what happened to him. Peter realized what happened. He began to weep. And, And Luke's account even tells us that at this time, he even locked eyes with Jesus in the midst of the third denial. So, what Jesus had predicted, beloved, earlier in this night, it took place. It took place just as He said would take place hours later. Peter's delusion, here it is, Peter's delusion of his superior strength at that moment was shattered when he did the very thing that he said he would never do. That is, abandon Jesus at His greatest time of trouble and falsely deny any association with Him at all. Saying, I do not even know this man. The sound of the rooster crow reminded Peter of Jesus' words and it left this bold and courageous Peter as a broken and humbled man. His delusion was crushed under the weight of of the evidence under the weight of reality. So this morning, beloved, this is in your notes, we're going to consider just one. I started the week with four unflattering ways. But we're just going to focus on one. I want to spend all of my time on just one. One unflattering way in which we act like Peter did so that we might see our desperate and ongoing need for God's help and strength in order to live for Him as we should. As we should. Beloved, that unflattering way in which we act like Peter did is we tragically deny the humbling truth about our human condition. Let me say this again. We tragically deny the humbling truth about our human condition. For some of you, this might be review. For some of you, this might be new. But listen to me carefully. According to the Bible, we are by nature, according to the Bible, beloved, we are by nature morally weak, corrupted, and sinful. Aren't you glad you came today? We are not morally strong, not righteous, not holy, not pure, not Good, according to the Bible. We are not born with good hearts that are just in need of a little positive encouragement or motivation, beloved. We are born sinners, ungodly rebels who are in desperate need of a righteousness that we do not possess, nor can we obtain through any of our own efforts. Let me remind you of a a few passages that you might be familiar with. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, 
Paul is laying out some of the benefits of being a Jew. Why is it good to be a Jew? He's laying this out in the beginning of the chapter. He himself, a Jew. But then he stops in verse 9 and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Yes, there are some benefits. He talks about them in chapter 3, but he says, In the end, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, stop right there, that's us, beloved. I know we're not Greek, but it's a reference to the Gentiles. We are of the Gentile nation. So the Bible divides us up into two categories in a sense. There's the Jews and there's the rest. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds and races, but we're all put into one big tub called Gentiles. And so he says here for both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, if you would, they are both, every people group, are under sin. As it is written in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. How many? None. Now, beloved, you're either righteous or you're not. You're not 50% there. 50% evil. That's not righteous. You want a righteous judge who is 50% evil? No. To be righteous is to have the absence of evil. To be pure. To be truly holy. Romans 5, 6-8. Guess what we read it this morning, didn't we? I'll read it again. For while we were still weak, helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We talked about it. That's us. He's talking about humanity. Beloved, these are not flattering descriptions. Right? Ungodly. He goes on to say, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a godly person one would even dare to die. But, in contrast to all that, God shows His love, unbelievable love, and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect one, the holy one, the righteous one laid down his life in our place. Here's another passage, Jeremiah 17.9. Maybe you know it. I've said this before. This is all by way of reminder just to set us up for what's coming. The heart is deceitful. Now listen, you can either... I went... You can either... You can either believe what you think in your mind... You can believe what the world says. You can believe what your parents tell you. Or your friends. Or Hollywood. You can believe that. Or you can believe what the Word of God says. I'm going to go with the Word of God. The Word of God says the heart, our mind, our will, our emotions, all that's caught up in that Word, not the physical organ. Our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, beloved... Think about this. In the passage right before this is, this is said, in the text, the writer, is Jeremiah, is, is laying out the ways of blessings and cursings. And he says the ways of blessings and cursings, they're just so clear before us. And so one writer commentating on this particular passage, Jeremiah 17.9, says, 
Why would anyone choose the path of sin? That's kind of what's going on here. It's so clear. The ways of blessing and the ways of cursing. Why in the world then would anyone choose to sin and receive cursings? The cause for such action is the heart. It is so deceitful that Jeremiah wondered who could even understand it. Why in the world would we choose sin? Because the heart is deceptive. Beloved, it's corrupted. By the way, King David, do you remember King David? King David, greatest king of Israel, the man that God said was a man after his own heart. Do you remember him? He was reflecting on and repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder he orchestrated of her husband Uriah. Beloved, Here's this great king, a man after God's own heart, who sees a beautiful woman bathing, calls her to come to his place, lays with her. She gets pregnant. Oops. So King David, you know the man after God's own heart? He decides to call Uriah from the front lines. He's at the front lines of battle fighting for the nation of Israel on behalf of the king. He decides to call him home. Have a little conversation with him. Hey, Uriah, how's it going? How's the war and everything? Excellent. Tell you what, I'm giving you a little break. Go down. Hang out with your wife for a while. Right? Because we know what would happen. He's been away for a while. He gets home. He's hoping they'll get together and then the pregnancy can just be said it was her husband's and the whole thing will never even be brought up again. But you know what Uriah does? No, king, how can I do that? My my men, my they're fighting out in battle. I will not go and relax while they're fighting. He camps outside of King David's door. He can't get him to go. So good old King David comes up with another idea. Okay, that's great. This guy, he's too loyal. All right, send him back out. Then he tells the commander of the army, put him in the front. And when the battle gets intense, pull away the other men. And Uriah dies. Beloved, adultery, deception, murder, King David. And in reflecting upon that, if you ever want to read that story, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12. In reflecting upon all that, in Psalm 51.5, he's reflecting on this. He's repenting of it before God. He knows it was wrong. He knows it was vile and wicked. And he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his mom having an adulterous affair and that's how he came forth. He's saying, I was literally brought forth and conceived in sin. I was born a sinner. And that's the truth, beloved. We are born sinners and therefore we are corrupted in our very nature. And this contradicts exactly what the world says and especially people like Lady Gaga. Oh, you're back with me now. Some of you went away and now you came back. Lady Gaga, and so many, lo- so many like her, 
try to tell us and teach us about humanity. So in her popular song, Born This Way, came out, I think, last year sometime, pretty popular among the culture and our youth. Born This Way. Here's the lyrics, beloved. Here's the lyrics. Maybe you don't know them. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. Okay. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, baby. Now, the he is capitalized in the lyrics, by the way. He's not, she's not talking about dad. She's talking about God. He made you perfect, baby, so hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say, I'm beautiful in my own way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I can't believe these people make millions of dollars. I just, I don't, under, I don't understand it. This is not music. Here's the... Later on, there's an agenda here, just one of her other lines, just so you know. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track, baby. She has an agenda. I'm born a superstar. Love who you are. Well, you know, Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, and the end thereof is death. You're on the right track. One writer says this in regard to this subject. He says, One of the popular lies of our culture, if not the dominating popular lie of our culture, and it's an old one, is that man is basically good, and that not only is man good generically, but you as an individual are more than good. You're great. You're more than great. You're wonderful. And you need to recognize that because all your power in life resides in your self-esteem. And all your influence in life and your ability to achieve great things lies in the power of your self-confidence. And people who fail and people who struggle are people who lack the power of self-esteem, and the power of self-confidence. You ever heard that? Now, we are taught this from the Bible. I'm going to make a little bit of jump here. We are taught from the Bible that Christians, Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, those putting their faith and confidence in Him, those who have given their lives to Him, those who are His disciples, those who are following after Him, Christians, at the moment of their conversion, at the moment that they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are given a new nature. Right? We are taught that in the Bible. They're given a new nature. And beloved, they need one. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17 like this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Glory to God. 
But it is also true that for the time being, while on this earth, we are still trapped in the corrupted, sinful, and weak bodies we had before we gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any of you got a glorified body that I don't know about? Because I want to meet you after the service. I want to find out where you got it, because I want it bad. Paul tells us in Romans 8.23 that we are still Christians eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Eagerly. One writer says this, We are not yet fully redeemed. We have experienced the redemption of our souls. Yes, we have. But not the redemption of the body. We still are human. We still are locked into fallen. That's another way of saying sinful. Human flesh. You with me so far? Good. Now I want you to see this quote. I want you to think through this a little bit with me. When we come to Christ and are born again and regenerated, given this new nature, there is a new nature in us. New desires, new longings, New aspirations, new loves. By the way, beloved, I'll just pause right there. If none of those things are true of you, you have not been regenerated. Stop kidding yourself. If none of those things are true, you see, none of those things true in your life, you're not born again. You don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. We can change that today. Would love to talk to you about that. But I just want to make sure you understand that. This is the reality for Christians. Something has happened to them. Something radical. But let me read on. But we have to fight against the incarcerating fallenness, this imprisonment, in a sense, of our own flesh. Every Christian, then, who has a right understanding of his or her nature, get this, understands that we live in a very dangerous not just the world around us not just the current culture that threatens us isn't that what we normally talk about oh my goodness this world is this culture is so corrupted and I agree but that is not that is not the only danger I would say it's not the most important danger we live as new creations in a very dangerous personal situation for we are contained within our own fallenness. Therein lies the spiritual struggle. One more quote here. Keep following with me. We want to be honest about that. I hope. We cannot trust in our own flesh we certainly have to have a healthy distrust of what we are and what we are capable of. Why am I saying all of that? Because to fail to have that is to put yourself in even greater jeopardy. To fail to distrust yourself is to put yourself in a very dangerous place. And that is exactly the experience of Peter. He learned the lesson of the deadly consequence of self-confidence and we need to learn it as well. Just think about that. 
Now let's get back to the text. Jesus has told His men who had been stuck to Him like glue for the last three years that they were going to fall away. That's what we read this morning. That they would forsake Him. Not permanently, beloved. Not permanently because Jesus says there was going to be a reunion in Galilee after His resurrection. That's the reference to when I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But you know what? Apparently, Peter taken back by the suggestion that he might be disloyal to Jesus when he said, hey, you're all going to fall away. It appears he just stopped listening. He didn't hear anything about when I'm raised up in this moment that they'll meet in Galilee because he doesn't ask anything about that. I mean, isn't that interesting that Jesus would say that? Yo, Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean when you are raised up? What's that all about? What's this place we're going to meet in Galilee? Where exactly that's going to... No. Nothing about that. As soon as he heard you're all going to fall away, Peter's mind starts running and he doesn't hear anything else that Jesus says. Apparently, he doesn't ask anything about it. Instead, he boldly takes the initiative here to protest Jesus' statement. Making it clear that he fully rejected the idea that he would ever abandon Jesus. In fact, he's not coming to the defense of the others. Just himself. Look back at the text with me. Mark 14.29. Catch this. Jesus makes the announcement. Peter said to him, even though they all, they all, they all fall away, I will not. Uh, I just, I would love to have been there and just see the look on the other disciples. One writer says, Peter's response suggests that Peter is not surprised at the thought of the defection of the other disciples. Perhaps he even expects it of them. At any rate, he does not defend their cause. What he staunchly defends is his cause. I will not. Peter thinks of himself as the exception to the rule. Where others fall, he will stand. Beloved, yeah, they might fall, not me. They might all cave, not me. One writer says this, although there was a genuine love for Christ behind his protest, and don't want to take anything away from Peter here, he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So certainly there was an element of here of Lord, I won't, I won't be disloyal to you. It did reveal his sad ignorance of his own weakness. In response to Peter's unfortunate protest in defense of his strong character in comparison with the other disciples, Jesus now actually singles him out. So they're all there. We are hours away from Jesus' crucifixion. He now singles Peter out among the eleven and he reveals to him that his failure would actually be greater than the rest. Peter, they won't fall away. They'll, they'll all fall away, but you won't. I have news for you. You're going to deny me three times. Look back at Mark 14.30 and Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
Peter, not only will you desert me like the rest, but three different times. Not one, Peter. Not one. Three. You will personally deny any relationship with me before the morning even comes. One writer says, a threefold denial is not a momentary slip of weakness. And remember I told you this took place over the course of about a couple of hours. He had time to think about each denial. You know what? Instead of Peter going, whoa, what's that about? He gets real fired up now. He gets angry, in a sense. Look back at 14.31. It says, but he said emphatically, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And now the other disciples are trying to get in on the action. Because it says, and they all said the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. That's right. What Peter said. Ditto. The word said, beloved, here in the English, it's in the imperfect tense. So I just, don't worry about that. But it just implies this in the original language, that they continued protesting. It wasn't a, they said it once and then they stopped. But it was a continual protesting, or that Peter continued to protest. He continued to make his, his point clear. And then it says he did this emphatically, emphatically in, in our ESV translation, forcefully, insistently as the NASB translated. The word means, that we translate here emphatically, it means that he spoke excessively or beyond all normal bounds. That's what it means. He was hot. One writer says, Jesus' explicit description of Peter's forthcoming denial was not convincing to him. He insisted on his willingness even to die with Jesus rather than to not deny him. But Peter did not know how weak he really was. Nor did the rest of the disciples know their weakness, for they quickly chimed in with him to declare their allegiance. One writer says, They all lived with an illusion about their spiritual strength. Yeah? Yeah? Unfortunately, so do many Christians today. They're delusional. We are delusional. I'll get to it in a second. I want you to think about this. Peter was unwilling to accept the idea that he would fail the Lord Jesus as he predicted. And Peter's response in one sense is really just a denial of the humbling truth of our human condition. See, you and I and Peter and the disciples were not born superstars as Lady Gaga would try to inform us. We are actually born corrupted sinners as the Bible tells us. We are naturally not strong and courageous, but rather we are weak and prone to fail the Lord. And even after becoming a Christian, we still retain for the time being our weak and sinful flesh. And that should lead us not to put trust in ourselves, but to have a healthy distrust. A healthy distrust of what we are. And sadly, what we are capable of. Let me try to illustrate this for you. 
Tim's niece, if you've been following it on the table, got cancer. What type of cancer was it, Tim? It was leukemia, right? And she probably, we thought she could die, certainly. She's had treatments. She's had a lot of prayer. She's in remission. Okay? So we're like, yeah, that's awesome. But this last, he posted an update on the table and we're all praising God, you know. But he mentioned on here, her name is Natalie. She's in remission from her cancer, but no church, no Disneyland, no stores for the next year. You guys, so that means she can't go to church, probably. She can't be out in the public. She can't be around people. Well, one of the reasons I would assume why is because her immune system has been compromised by all the, certainly by the cancer, but all the drugs they had to give her to kill the cancer, and it destroys her immune system so that this little girl now is, is very weak in regard to her immune system. Probably emotionally she's on a high, but she's weak in her immune system. And, and it would be foolish for her, okay? It would be foolish for her if she didn't acknowledge that and just decided to go off to church or be around people or go to, go to Disneyland where there's a lot of people and they're sneezing and wiping their germs all over the place. But she's got to... She's got to know, right? She, this little girl's got to know. Sweetheart, they had to explain it to her. Your immune system is compromised. You are no longer what you were. You're a weak girl. And it won't take much, honey, to take you down. It won't take much. You might just pick up a little germ, a little sneeze here. So until your immune system builds back up, baby, we got to keep you away from all that bad stuff because your body can't take it. We walk around, beloved, like our spiritual immune system, like our flesh doesn't exist, like we don't have a sinful nature. We live with that mindset. We don't accept the fact that we still are sick, weak, and that we are capable of great sin against God and against one another. We start thinking, hey, I'm okay. I can do anything. I was thinking about dialysis patients. Where's Susie? Is she in here? Nope. Susie's probably a nurse or something. Susie's a dialysis nurse. Right, Lewis? Can you imagine a dialysis patient? Can you imagine they have to go? Some of them are really bad. Their kidneys are failing. So they go through this process where it filters their blood so it takes out some of the elements and water and such. And I'm not a doctor, but I can read Google. And so they take all this stuff out and they fix it because their kidneys aren't filtering it out. And if they don't go and have their dialysis treatment, they will die. Right? Can you imagine a dialysis patient saying, "I I don't need to go, I don't need to go. I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm good. No, they know, beloved, they know. And if they said they didn't have to go, then I would say, you're delusional, you're sick. If you don't go and get the treatment, you'll die. Your kidneys can't do what they need to do. They are weak, they are corrupted, they are broken. Beloved, we are weak and corrupted and broken. New natures, yes, but still carrying around this body of death, corrupted by sin. 
and we think we're all that. We, in a sense, deny either in ignorance or with knowledge the reality of our humble human condition. How do we do that? I want to make this practical for you this morning. Well, we do it because we don't have a healthy distrust of what we are and what we're capable of. As a result, we put ourselves into situations with no safeguards, situations that have the potential to be morally dangerous. And we do that because we're not even thinking we're going to fail morally. And that's just one side of this. Let me give you just an example because I want to go somewhere else with this. It's like the guy at work that that decides he's going to have private and personal conversations or meetings with the opposite sex. Private or personal conversations or meetings with the opposite sex. And he thinks, and she happens to be attractive to boot. And he thinks, hey, I'm fine. I'll I'll never cheat on my wife. I'll never mess around. You moron! You're delusional, buddy! You are weak! You are setting yourself up for failure. Who do you think you are? Given enough time, given the right circumstances, you are susceptible. You better guard yourself. You're a sick puppy. I'm a sick puppy. That would be an example. I use men like that because men are usually the culprits. They usually are. It doesn't mean women don't mess around, but men, I'll tell you, I'm a man so I can talk to you. I'm fed up with men. (laughs) Just in a general way. I'm fed up with myself too. I'm not picking on you. Man, we gotta wake up, man. We keep putting ourselves in all kinds of compromising situations, thinking we're strong, we're all that. Falling. One after another after another, divorce, adultery, over and over and over again. That's one example. I'm going to set internet browsing, because I'll say it, because I know some of you are on the internet filling your heads with pornography. I know you are. I don't know because I'm in your home, but I know by the statistics and I know because of our corrupted hearts. So instead of a guy saying, I can't handle this, man, this internet, this box out of my house. I won't even have it. Oh, that's crazy, Jeremy. That's radical. You don't think going to dialysis every day is crazy and radical? You know why they do it? Because if they don't, they'll die. You don't think it's a little nuts to tell a little girl you're locked away for a year, honey? You know why they have to do it? Because if they don't, she might die. We think we're, we don't think we're sick. So we don't get crazy about it. We don't get radical. And we don't always actively and aggressively take advantage of the things, this is on the other side, that can strengthen us or contribute to our spiritual health that we might be able to stand and fight against our unredeemed sinful nature. Now now I'm going to get personal. So I thought to myself, I should give you one of those disclaimers. You know, the following program is rated R for radical. All of the content may not be appropriate or suitable for the members. Please don't be offended, unless you should be. (laughs) Let me give you this. Sunday mornings, okay? Why do you guys come on Sunday morning? I'll tell you why why I come. Well, you, you come, you're the pastor. You have to come. You get paid to come. 
Beloved, come on. I've been coming to church for a long time, way before I was the pastor in any official role. I need to come to church. I need to be with you. I need to hear the Word of God. I need it for my dry and weary and sick soul. I need it because after a week of all the garbage, I need it because I'm sick. I need the strength that seeing my brothers and sisters gives me. I need the strength that hearing the Word of God does to me. The conviction that comes into my heart and reveals the sin in my life and causes me to repent. I need to hear about Christ's saving work and be motivated by it to turn from sin and to walk in righteousness. That's why I come. I mean, there's some other reasons too, but that's the main reason. Because I'm sick. So you know what? People who don't see it that way, they're cool with missing church. Hmm. Who would miss a dialysis appointment? See, but we... And beloved, people take vacations. I get all that. I, I wasn't here a couple of weeks ago, right? There's balance in our lives. But, if, but I'll tell you, I was dying to get back. I was dying to get back. And people just take a very flippant attitude. You know why? Because they're delusional. They're like Peter. I'll never. I'll stand strong. Church, yeah. I mean, yeah, I need it every couple of weeks or at least once a month or every quarter. Relieve some of my guilt and I get to say hi to some... No, beloved, you need it. You need it. You're sick like me. You need to be here for your own welfare, for the glory of God. You need to be here. When you start thinking like that, I know it's crazy, but when you start thinking like that, it will change you. It will revolutionize you. How about midweek Bible studies? Well, Jeremy, I don't really have time for that. You know, schedule and stuff. Now, some of you have crazy work schedules, and I get it. So I would pray that you could change your work schedule. That's what I would do. Or I would ask for a day off. But see, beloved, here it comes, here it comes. I warned you. I warned you. You know, I, you know, I just can't, you know, I just can't. Make... You think you're okay. That's the problem. Let me ask you something. Why do you think we put on midweek Bible studies, men's meeting, women's meeting? Why do you think we do that? You know we don't take an offering at any of those, right? And if you think church is for the offering, then don't give. If that's what you think this is all about. Don't give. But we don't take offerings at those things. So we're not collecting money. And I don't report to a big corporate guy that checks my attendance and gives me bonuses. Because if I did, man, I'd have a whip on your backs and you would be there. I know how to manage people. (laughs) I'm kidding. Kind of. I don't get anything. Why are we doing it? Have you thought about it? As the shepherd, as the guy that has been given the responsibility to care for your souls, we've come up with this stuff that we think is necessary and helpful for your spiritual welfare. I think you need it. I need it. You need it. And then you'll stop coming up with all these ridiculous excuses for why you can't be there or why you didn't make it on this particular given day. Again, would a dialysis patient Call in and go, uh, I don't know, I'm just not feeling too good today. I'm just not going to come in. No, ask Susie. She's not in here right now. I don't know where she's at. She's in the nursery. She's somewhere. 
She's not here. Great. This is a good example. But she's probably... She's a faithful woman, though, I'll tell you. Uh, ask her, guys. Think about this. No one would do that. No one in their right mind would do that. If the dialysis patient said that, they would say, Honey, sweetie, please. They would plead with them. You've got to come in. You're sick. If you don't do it, you're going to get sicker. You can seriously compromise your health. That's what I'm saying to you. My heart breaks when you guys don't show up. Because I know. I know your condition because I know my condition. I know how much I need to be around the people of God, to hear the Word of God. And we're just walking, a Christian church is walking around like delusional, thinking they're okay, listening to Lady Gaga, having everyone tell them, you're strong. Don't go crazy with that church stuff. You don't need all that. Oh, yes, you do. How about Bible readings? How about prayer, beloved? Prayer. Oh, I don't, I don't pray, but you know... Right before this all happened, we'll get to it next week in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. One of His most difficult times in His life. You know what His disciples are doing? Sleeping, baby! He wakes them up. Could you pray with me just for a little while? Goes away, comes back. Sleeping! Why? Beloved, if they knew how sick they were, if they knew how much they needed God's help in order to make it through the next moment, the next day, let alone the next week or year, they would do anything they had to do Drink coffee, Red Bull, whatever it takes to stay awake and pray. The other day someone asked me, well, it's been asked several times. We're doing this study in Biden. It's called Bite and Devour in the men's study. It's about conflict. It's based on Galatians 5.15. It's about how people eat, eat, eat and consume one another in the church. And someone asked me, hey, is this... Why are we doing this study? Is, it, is this happening right now? Uh, not that I know of. You know why we're doing this study? Because it's bound to happen. <laughs> Beloved, I don't know if you know, but every other week I hear another report of a church dissolving, splitting, infighting, corruption, evil, pastors doing insane things. Church is delusional. They're walking around like they're spiritually strong. They're not doing everything they can to build themselves up in the Word and the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are putting themselves in compromising situations thinking they'll stand. Everyone else may fall, but I'll stand. And they don't. And they fall. And they sin. And the consequences are destruction. And beloved, I don't want to be that church. The writer in Psalm 119.11, he says this, I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. Beloved, why do you think I tell you to read your Bibles? You think, I'm not telling you to read your Bibles so God will let you into heaven. I'm not telling you to read your Bibles so that you, know, you can feel good about yourself. Don't feel good about yourself. I don't. I feel good about God. I feel good about Jesus Christ. I feel good about Him. He's awesome. I'm messed up. So I need the Word of God. You need the Word of God. I need to read it. I need to absorb it. I need to meditate on it on a regular basis because I'm sick. And if I don't take it in, I will sin against Him. You can count on it. Take it to the bank. And even then, Lord, I'm, it's true, I might sin even if I'm reading the Bible, but man, I'm drawn back quicker. I recognize my depravity quicker. I see it quicker and I repent. I drop. That's what David did. All right. 
I'm going to read this last quote to you. I just want you to, I posted this for the men. But I thought, you know what? You guys should all see this. I thought you would all benefit from this. Just think this through. Oh, where is that quote? Listen to this. Nope, not that one. Last one, brother. Last one. Here's a quote from an old preacher, C.H. Spurgeon. Some of you may know him. He was called the Prince of Preachers. God used him. He wasn't a great man. God made him a great man. God used him in a great way. God did great things through him. God gets all the credit and glory. But here's one of the things he said. Brother, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted black, it's supposed to say, and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. I don't know how I gotta wrap this. What? Did someone say something? You're gonna have to tell me. Oh, the screen. Um, here's how I wrap this up right now. Beloved, please think about these things. Don't be delusional. Don't be delusional. I would say you do whatever you can. Um, to plug into as many things as you possibly can that will strengthen you spiritually. That's what I would say. I would do whatever it takes. I would stop making excuses, realizing that you're sick and I am sick. You are setting yourself up for disaster and by extension this body since you are part of it. If you remain delusional. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that You would work in our hearts and our minds that we would be convicted by some of these things, Lord. Father, I think really it just boils down to seeing ourselves rightly. Seeing ourselves biblically. Stop thinking we're something when we're nothing. Saved all by grace. And any good thing that comes from us is really from You. It's not from us. And Father, we are still confined by these sinful bodies. And we have to wrestle with that on a regular basis. And, and Father, I, don't, I didn't even get a chance to talk about this, but I'm just thinking right now. I think we get confused because people walk around and, and we don't tell each other, we don't confess to each other our sin. We pretend like we don't have any. <laughs> you know, now that I think about it, Father, Peter should have... When he heard the words of your, of your son, he should have said, Lord, help me. Help me not to do this. What can I do? I confess I'm weak. Help me not to deny you. Help me not to turn from you. Help me not to flee you. That's what we need to do. Stop pretending that we're not all messed up. And that without Jesus Christ, we would be a wreck. But Father, help us to embrace all that You have given us. Your Word, prayer, the church, one another. Take advantage of these things. 
Because we recognize our desperate condition, our humble human condition. In Jesus' name, Amen.